Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, we are going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 28, and we're going to go all the way into chapter 3 and go to verse 3. Um, this morning, we're going to be taking a little hiatus from our book in study in Exodus, but uh, if you would stand with me, I want to read these verses uh, as we're getting started. So in honor of the Word of God, let's stand together as I read. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, like I said, we're going to take a little break from the book of Exodus so that we can start a new five-week mini-series that we have entitled More Like Jesus. And, you know, one of the things that people are always looking for is purpose in their life. We're always looking for purpose And the good thing about being a disciple of Jesus is we don't have to look for purpose anymore because we know that our purpose in life is to glorify God. That is the purpose. Everything that we do, our purpose is to glorify God by making much of his son, Jesus. And so this year in 2022, we want to grow to be more like Jesus because when we do that, as we are transformed to becoming more like Jesus we are going to do what we were created to do, and that is to glorify God. And, you know, one of the things I love about entering into a new year is that it gives us time to look back and and to reflect, not just on last year, but also to reflect on our lives. You know, where have we been? Where has God brought us from? Thinking about that, uh, where are we today? And where is God taking us, or where are we headed for in the future? I know that in 2022, many of us have plans. Many of us have hopes as we're moving forward. And you know what? One of the good things about assessing ourselves is that we're able to see if we're headed in the wrong direction. We can make course corrections if we're headed in the wrong directions, like a ship. And that's why a lot of people make New Year's resolutions. I don't know. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I don't know if you uh, made a New Year's resolution, but As I was thinking about New Year's resolutions, um, I realized that when we make one, 
Have you ever noticed it's always about making changes and improvements in our lives? I've never met somebody, uh, unless they were not in their right mind, I've never met someone that said, you know what, this year, um, my New Year's resolution is to wreck my life. I'm, I'm going to go bankrupt. I'm going to gain weight. You know, I'm going to spend more time on my phone and watching TV and less time with my family and building relationships. I have never heard of someone doing that. Now, that's a lot of times what we do, but I don't know of anyone that has to resolve to do that. That's kind of our default. New Year's resolutions always involve, you know, saying this year I'm going to get back in shape or get in shape. Uh, I'm going to eat better. I'm going to spend less, save more. Um, I'm going to build deeper and more meaningful relationships. If you're a disciple of Jesus, one of our goals will be to be more like Jesus in 2022. At the end of 2022, I want to look back and see, you know what? I have been transformed more into the image of Jesus. But it's always about improving our lives. It's always about getting better. And one of the things I was th- as I was thinking about New Year's resolutions whether you're a believer or not, you know what it, it shows? It, it shows that everybody wants to be, whether, whether you realize it or not, you want to be more like Jesus. That's, that's what you're wanting, perfection in your life. Now, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that everyone wants to follow Jesus. I'm not saying that. Uh, but everyone wants to be like Jesus, and some people without him being in control of our lives. It's, it's like the saying says that everybody, did you know that everybody wants to go to heaven? It's just that not everybody wants God to be there when they get there because he will be there reigning and telling us what to do. A, a, a believer who has surrendered to him now is just like, yes, I want you to rule. I want to be in heaven. But everybody wants things to get better. And we, you know, the good news is that if you have turned to Jesus Put your faith in him. If you have trusted in him, God has done something in you. He has begun what is called a good work in you by his Holy Spirit. And he is already, if you are truly his, you're already being transformed into the image of God. It's, it's much better than making New Year's resolutions, things from the outside in. It's the inside out transforming us by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1, he says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion. When? At the day of Jesus. And so as, as, you know, as we read our passage today, it says that when Jesus appears, we're going to be like him. And the process will be fully completed. But but, you know, the question that, that I, we have to deal with is this. What about the in-between time? You know, the time when you come to Jesus and he begins a good work in you and to the time that we see him face-to-face and it's completed. Let me ask you this. Would you say that this morning that you are more like Jesus or you're just like Jesus? Good. I'm glad you laughed at that because... Um, if you said you're just like Jesus, uh, we would have a, 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 a we need to have a conversation because Scripture says, and here's why: because Scripture says in First John one eight, in the same book that we're in, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If you think that you're sinless, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. Now, this is John is speaking to believers, and this is actually good news because we can openly say, you know what, I struggle with sin. 
I, I don't want to, but I do. And I'm not the same as I was yesterday, but I still struggle with sin. But later, John says in chapter 2, he says, by this we know that we are in him. By this we know that we are Jesus's, that we are God's children. He says, whoever abides in him ought to walk in the way, the same way in which he walked. So he's saying, you need to walk like Jesus if you say that you are his. So which is it? Are we people that struggle with sin or are we people that walk and live like Jesus? And I would say that scripture teaches we're both. We're both. The time between salvation and the day of judgment is the time that we are becoming more like Jesus. Verse 3 of our passage today, chapter 3, verse 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in him does what? Purifies himself. I'm going to read that again. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, what is John talking about here, that we purify ourselves? Well, clearly he's not talking about that we pay for our own sins, right? That, that's, we know that as believers, that Jesus uh, came to pay for our sins. Some, sometimes we might think, well, if I do good things, if my good outweighs my bad, then I will be forgiven, I will, God will be happy with me. But that's not at all what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches that we can't make God happy through our, our works and that Jesus did what we could not do. We trust that he has purified us by his sacrifice on the cross. So what does purifying ourselves mean? It's, it's talking about a, um, a moral uh, purity. It's talking about everyone who, who trusts or who has this hope of Christ uh, walks, seeks to walk righteously. They, uh, they seek to fight against sinful desires and temptations. It's that walk of dying to ourselves, uh, it's where we cooperate with the Holy Spirit to become who we already are. Like we've been talking about in Exodus, already, but not yet. In the eyes of God, in Christ, we are already perfect. But as we walk in this earth, we see that we still have areas that we need to grow and to be transformed, to be more like Jesus. And you know, God knows that this transformation is difficult. Did you know that? That God knows that? He knows that being transformed is not easy. Jesus knows that. And he knows that yielding ourselves to him is not easy. Dying daily is not easy. And so we need motivation. And fortunately, the passage that we read just a minute ago gives us three motivations that I want us to look at as we're moving forward in 2022 to be more like Jesus. And the first one is this, that we are children of God. The first motivation that should motivate us to want to purify ourselves, that should make us want to be transformed more to be like Jesus, is that, number one, if you are in Christ, we are children of God. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Your, my, your Bible might say, Behold. That word see means, Would you look at this? It means, Pay attention, examine what. I'm about to talk about, examine the kind of love that God has loved us with. That we, here it is, here's the kind, that we should be called children of God. And then he says, and so we are. And that's what we are. It's like he's 
emphasizing this, this truth, this wonderful truth. And, and, you know, the amazing thing about this is, well, for us, we've heard this. If you've been in America, you've probably heard that all your life. God, the children of God, being a child of God. So to us, it may not be amazing. But one of the amazing things is that if we stop and really contemplate it and think about it, God, the Father, is publicly declaring to everyone that those who hated him, those who despised him, those who were disobedient, those who put his son to death, are now loving and obedient children in his household. Now, you know, the Muslims, I've, I've heard that in Islam, that there are 99 names for the name of Allah. 99, but not one of them is father. The, the Muslim would never dare to call his, their God, and I'm, I'm making it clear it's a different God than the God we're worshiping. They're, they don't worship the God that, that we worship, so I want to make clear that. Their God uh, would never allow them or relate to them as Father. And, um, and Jesus says, here's what's interesting to me, in, in Matthew 7, Jesus, he's talking to fathers and he says, you know what, you fathers are evil. Um, if you don't like the word evil, you could translate it to wicked. Okay, you fathers are wicked. I'm not. That's what Jesus said, and you know, honestly, I can't argue with that. Uh, I totally agree with it. Uh, so does my wife. So do my children. Uh, they know. If you ask them, uh, don't ask them exactly why, but they know that Dad needs a savior. Um, I need uh, uh, Jesus. Uh, I need his forgiveness. I know that uh, I'm, I'm a wicked man at, at my core, uh, and that I need a Savior. The good news is that Jesus doesn't just stop there. He goes on to say um, that we who are wicked, we still know how to give good gifts. We still know how to love our children. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed this this morning, but uh, I got a haircut. I don't know if you noticed it, uh, but I got a haircut. And uh, the reason I did that is because we have a tradition in our family that uh, I think we've been doing it for about 15 years now, that when our child turns 13 that year, at the beginning of that year, if it's uh, our son, we call it the wine press. If it's our daughter, we call it the olive press. And what it is is a time where we set eight months aside to do, we memorize scripture, we uh, set goals for ourselves, um, we we do exercising, we eat better. Uh, It's a... It's a concentrated time that, as we're discipling our kids, to uh, just spend more time with them and just have a good uh, kind of like, it's kind of like an entry, uh, kind of like maybe a bar mitzvah or something like that. It's not in the Bible, so we're not following the scripture on this. It's just something that we've enjoyed doing. It's something that makes sense to us. I know that this doesn't make sense to most of you, and just so you know, we don't shave our, our daughter's heads. Um, they get to do things like get bangs or, you know, highlight their hair, right? Do, go, you know, do, do things like that. And, uh, but the point I'm trying to make here is that even me, being wicked and evil, as Jesus has said, I still have a desire to point my children in the right direction. We love our kids, don't we, fathers? We love our children, we love, you know, when they're little, we love cuddling them with them. We love comforting them. We, we love giving them wise counsel. And we are broken. We, we, are, we don't see it as we ought to. And here's the contrast. Here's what I'm getting to with all this. How much more our Father who is in heaven, 
who is perfect. How much more perfectly will he love us? How much more perfectly does he care for us? That's the motivation right there, knowing that we have a father who created all things, who is over all things that we can go to. And knowing that should be a motivation that should help us. I want to live for him. Secondly, a second motivation that we need to look at is that one day we're going to be made perfect. We've, I've already talked about this a little bit. Verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. That's, this is kind of uh, connected to what I just talked about. It doesn't say we're going to be God's children. We're going to be transformed into his children. He's saying we're his children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we will know but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. In other words, we are going, the moment we see him, we are going to be made perfect. New bodies, new minds, everything will be new and perfect as Christ is. The Apostle Paul echoes this also in 1 Corinthians 15. This should be hope for us, church, if you're struggling um, with where you are right now. Paul says in, in fifth, chapter 15, verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all not sleep. That's a way of saying we shall not all die. Not, not, there will be children of God alive on earth when what, what he's about to say happens. So we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. He's talking about those who are in Christ. We shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And I love 53. Here's how. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put, put on immortality. So knowing that we are going to be given new bodies, knowing that we are going to be made perfect, man, this should excite us, especially the older we get. We realize, I agree with Paul, we are in decaying bodies. But praise God, we are going to be given new ones. With that in mind, it makes me want to be more like Jesus. It makes me want to bring glory to Jesus. The third one, the third gospel truth that should motivate us is Jesus is returning. All right, that's the one I'm going to camp out on for the rest of this message Jesus is returning. We need to realize that. It's connected to uh, the one that I just shared, that we're going to be changed. When, when he comes back, those who are in him are going to be changed like the twinkling of an eye. Look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 28. It says, And now, little children, abide in him. By God's grace, next week I want to drill into what that means, to abide in him. But this week it says, we're going to look at, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Jesus is returning like a groom for his bride. And, you know, all throughout Scripture, if you've studied Scripture, you know that the, the metaphor of marriage is used to illustrate the covenantal relationship between God and his people. For example, in Isaiah 54, verse 4, it says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. 
Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. And here it is. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. In in the New Testament, um, when speaking of his return, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He uses the the marriage analogy in the parable of the ten virgins. If you remember the the parable of the ten virgins, where he tells his church, stay awake. Stay alert. Be ready because you don't know when the groom is going to come back. And so Jesus uses the marital union between a man and a woman, a biblical marriage. He uses that to help us to understand what it means to purify ourselves while we are waiting for the the groom to return. And what I want to do is I want to look at a a Jewish marriage. Um, In the Jewish community, it was different than what we... Some of the things are similar, but it's a lot different in a lot of ways too. But there there were three steps that led up to the consummation of a Jewish marriage. The first one was the engagement. Now, the engagement happened when, when a father would go to another father and they would draw up a formal contract. Now, I know that most of us in this room are thinking that, oh, that just, that would not work in today's day and age. Um, I don't know, that's the dark ages and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, as I've studied it, as I've thought about it, this actually could be, and I say could be, a healthy thing. Um, Just imagine two godly parents who fear God, who love God, and for their whole lives, they have been training their children, discipling their children, helping them to be, make, grow, and then to unleash them as gospel-centered disciples. Imagine that. You've got two parents doing that. That would mean that they would know their children. They're spending time with their children. They're understanding their likes. They understand their dislikes. They understand their strengths. They understand their weaknesses. And, you know, a parent like that, and that's a lot of the parents in this room, the parent like that, what do we want? We want what's best for our children. And if we're God-fearing, we want what's best for the glory of God. So that would be kind of like the, the background of how that would look when two fathers would come together. And the goal of, of the father of the daughter, one of his goals would be to protect his daughter. He would want to be able to give her away. You know when we go down the aisle, well, when you've heard... They say, who gives this woman to be married? Have you ever thought about that? No? Okay. What's going on there? I think about this a lot. Um, When you're going down the aisle, I'm like, "Why why do they go her mother and I? Because there is, there's supposed to be a covering that is over our children as parents. And when we're taking them down the aisle, we're saying, I'm giving this daughter to you, the groom, to be her covering now. I'm giving her away. But until then, I'm protecting her. I'm guarding her. I want to make sure that as best I can, and if she's willing, and that's not always the case on either side, but if they're willing, I want to be able to give my daughter away whole and pure, right? That, that's, that would be what the Jewish father would have wanted to do. Now, a father who has a son, what would be his goal? His goal would be to train his son to be a man, 
There are differences, aren't there? Praise God there are differences. Scriptures clearly teach that there's differences between a man and a woman because they both bring glory to God, right? If if we're operating the way that God created us, women and men, when we operate filled with his spirit, we bring glory to God. And so the, the father would be teaching his son how to be a man, how to protect a woman, how to provide, how to be the pastor, the shepherd, how to care for for his family. So think about that, right? You got these two things going on and two fathers talking and they, hey, you know what? This might be a good engagement. And I think in in that case, hopefully there would be healthy relationships between the father and the children and the children would would trust their fathers in this. Um, But I'd also want to make the point that it wasn't a forced marriage in the Jewish culture. It was not something that was forced upon the other person. Um, like Abraham. If you remember Abraham, he sent out his servant for Isaac to find Isaac a wife. When he goes to Rebekah's home, what does he do? He goes to the family. The brothers go to Rebekah and they say, do you want to go? And she consents. She says, yes, I do. They did not force her to go back to be with Isaac. And that's a picture of the gospel. Jesus never comes to anybody and says, you will submit to me and be my bride. Now, there is a day that Jesus will come on the day of judgment that to those who would refuse to submit to him, he will have to do, he will have to conquer. But right now, he's wanting to conquer us with love. He is a groom that's saying, will you marry me? That, that's the picture right there. It's a, it's a mutual consent. Now, there are situations, I'm sure, where fathers force their daughters to, or their children to do something against their will, kind of like in the Princess Bride. You know, when Princess Buttercup is forced to marry Prince Humperdinck. Uh, if you haven't watched that, you need to. That's part of discipleship at Reach Life Church. But in a godly home, you know, I can see how it could be beneficial. I spent a lot of time on that point, but, but, I, but I wanted to kind of I know that we can think, oh, that's weird. But if you look at it in the context of a culture that's healthy, that could be a beautiful thing. And I'm not recommending that this is what's going to go on at Reach Life Church. I'm just saying that that's what happened back then. So that was the engagement, which once the, sometimes this was done when the children were little, but when they came of age, they would move to the, the period of betrothal. That would be the next step. And this, this would be a formal ceremony that, were, that was held between the groom and the bride before witnesses, and they would exchange vows, and often they would seal the covenant with with wine. They would drink wine. It reminds me a lot of the Lord's Supper, but it was one of those things where it was a very formal uh, ceremony. The, The groom would come. He would bring gifts to give to the bride. A lot of times, he would pay the father uh, a bridal price. I love this part of, 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 the, of the Jewish culture. I think we need to do that in, in this culture now. A big, healthy bridal price to pay for the wedding um, to prove that he was serious. He, did, he, he, he wanted to show that he was serious. I'm not playing around with this. I mean business here. And so this covenant was so binding that the only way that it could be broken is, is if you had a divorce. If you remember when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, it said that he, uh, he sought to divorce her quietly. He couldn't just say, I'm breaking up. He said, no, no. He would have to say that it's going to be a divorce. So this was a very serious covenant that they would make together. And during the time of the, the uh, betrothal, um, they would live separately 
in different, in, in different places, and it usually lasted for about a year. And they were fully committed to one another. And one of the things that was going on here is that the, um, the groom was proving himself. He was proving that he had the ability to provide for his uh, bride. And so he would go and often make a home uh, for her. Sometimes it would be in the, in the father's home, as I've studied that. That would happen sometimes. And, um, and, and during this time, though, the couple remained sexually pure. They didn't touch until the day of their wedding consummation. So um, that would be the betrothal, which the final step would be the wedding. And this happened usually at the end of a year. Uh, once the groom had completed his preparations, he would go oftentimes to the village, if he wasn't living in the village where the, the bride was, he would go to the village uh, where they lived, and they would invite friends, they would invite relatives. It would be a, a fest festival, a time of festivity, and uh, they would celebrate and have a, a wedding feast that often lasted, get this, seven days. And this is the part I'm, praise God that this is not part of it now. I mean, I'm thinking about one meal and a wedding, so, but seven days they would do this. Do you remember Jesus uh, in John chapter 2? It says that uh, he was invited, him and his disciples were invited to a wedding and feast. And what happened? They ran out of wine. Why? Because it was going for so long. And it would be a shame. Hey, we're out of food. We're, we can't celebrate. Jesus saves the day. He turns the water into wine. So this would go on for like seven days or so. And on the last day of the, the wedding celebration, the bride, she would go back to her home. She would go back to be where, where she lived with, and take her, her bridesmaids with her. And she would go and make final preparations. Now, ladies, I want you to think about this. If this was you and you were making final preparations, what would you be doing? You would want to make sure that you look good, right? You'd be purifying yourself, right? You'd be checking your makeup, your hair, making sure your dress was good, your breath smells good, whatever the things that women do. But you would not be like dating somebody, getting one last kiss in, right? You would be waiting, purifying yourself. You want to look good when he comes to the door. That's what they would do. She would wait for him to come, and she did not know when that would be. It was part of the festivity, the, the anticipation of not knowing when, what hour he was going to come. And oftentimes, historians uh, teach us that it was late at night when you could get drowsy. You know, if you think about the parables, you could get drowsy during those times and fall asleep. Uh, but a good bride, one that anticipates, that loves her groom, would be waiting uh, I've tried to picture what that would look like. It's dark, and she's just waiting for him to come to hear, and she begins to hear sounds, singing, laughter. She can hear the shouts of the groomsmen and the light uh, from the lanterns and the torches lighting up the sky, and as it's getting louder and louder as he's coming closer and closer. I don't know what the groomsmen would be yelling, the Probably the groom is coming, kind of like John the Baptist did for Jesus. He's called the groomsman, right? He's coming. And she's anticipating the voice of her groom. Then she hears the knock. Yo, baby, I'm here. It's showtime. I don't know what he said. 
But, I doubt it was that, but, that's what I would have done. But, that's why I'm not Jewish. What's interesting to me is just the, the analogy of that, how that relates to us. If we think of ourselves as being the bride and Jesus is the groom, that's how it's depicted in the scriptures. But in the, the final hours of Jesus, when he was in the upper room with the disciples, listen to what he says in John 14, 1 through 4. They are sad because he told them, I'm leaving you. They're, they're sorrowful. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And here's, this is where all the imagery kind of hits me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That is such good news, isn't it? to those who are waiting for the groom, for those who are anticipating the groom to come. And you know, church, right now, right now where we are, if we were to look at the Jewish wedding, we are in the betrothal period. That, that's where we are. We are waiting for the day when the, bride, when the groom comes back for us. Revelation 19, 6 through 7, gives us this promise that it's going to happen. It says this, Then I heard, this is John again writing what he saw, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. These are true words of God. Jesus has spoken true words to his church to his bride, to his people. And he has promised us that he is coming back for his people. That's why John writes what, what we read earlier. That's why he says, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And then he says in verse three, chapter three again, he says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let me ask you this in, as we close here. I want to ask you this. I, I, I want you to think about this. Does Jesus this morning have your heart? Right now, does he have your heart? In other words, um, how do you know? Let me ask you this. Are you waiting for him? Do you think about his return? How often do you think about his return? Are you actively, with the help of the Holy Spirit, are you purifying yourself? Are you responding to the Holy Spirit when he says, hey, hey, the way you talked to your spouse, that, that wasn't healthy. Or the way you're, you're, you're working for your employer, that's not good. Or, you know what you're doing in private? You know that's wrong. 
Repent of it. Purify yourself. Are we actively purifying ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit? Or are we allowing other lovers to come in and to steal our affections, to lull us to sleep, to to make us to forget about the marriage feast? Maybe the tempting you to, to move on. You might be tempted to move on to something else, someone else other than Christ. Where are you at this morning? You know, one of my favorite movies of all time is Castaway. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I don't recommend movies, but this, all, this movie's awesome. Don't watch it, though, because I did not recommend it. But in that movie, Tom Hanks, he plays uh, the part of a workaholic FedEx executive whose name is Chuck. And on Christmas Day, he has to work, and he meets with his uh, girlfriend at the time. Her name was Kelly, to get on the plane, and they exchange gifts. Kelly gives him an heirloom pocket watch that was from her family, and you opened it, and her picture was in it. And Tom Hanks gives her a box the size of an engagement ring. And what he tells her, he says, uh, you can open it on New Year's Day. So you know he's asking her to marry him. The last thing Tom Hank or Chuck says when he gets into the plane, as he heads to the plane, he says, I'll be right back. Well, as the plane takes off and, and several hours into the flight, they hit a storm and the, and the plane crashes into the Pacific Ocean. Tom Hanks is the only one that survives. He washes up onto an island, a deserted island, and he ends up surviving there for four years. He learns how to survive. There's two things that kept him alive. Number one was a volleyball, a Wilson volleyball, and the second was the pocket watch that he'd been given. He would open it, look at her picture, remind himself of who loved him. If I can just get back to her. He drew a picture of her on the the wall, on the rock wall, And that's what kept him alive until he could make a a makeshift raft and he was able to escape the island and he was rescued by an ocean liner only to find that when he got back home, Kelly had already moved on. She'd already gotten married and had a kid with someone else. It's one of the most, uh, you can just feel it in your heart. And here's what she said. This is the line that, that really sticks out to me. She said this when they finally get to talking. She said, I always knew you were alive. I knew it. But everyone else told me I needed to go on. That right there is a picture of what it's like for us to live in this world right now. Church, we know that Jesus is alive And everything around us is telling us, no, he's not. Move on to something that you can touch and feel that's tangible. But we know, church, we know that he is alive. We know that our God, our Savior, loves us, not just with what he has said, but he's loved us with his own blood by dying for us. He purchased us. That was his gift, his bridal gift to us, his death. And we also know that, yes, he did die, but he didn't stay dead. He conquered death and he rose from the dead. The scriptures say that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. You know what he's doing? I don't know exactly what he's doing, but I know one thing he's doing is he's waiting 
for the day when his father is going to say, now's the time. Get up and go get your bride. That is what we are called to, church, to put in front of ourselves day after day so that we will purify ourselves and so that we will not shrink back when he comes. We want to run out to him like a bride that has, that has kept herself for Christ, for her groom. So we know that Jesus, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is returning for his bride. And chances are, if you're like me, um, a lot of times that truth just doesn't seem real. It just seems like this distant, distant thing. Or if you're like me, you get distracted with life, and you just it's just not even a reality. I, I had to, um, as I've been studying this passage, I had to come to a place of repentance and say, you know what, Jesus, I know these, I know I could say these things true, but they're not true right here, right now. Right now. They have been, but they're not. I've had to come to a place where I'm like, Lord, that's awaken me. Lord, and here's, here's the good thing about what I'm sharing with you is that, that Jesus promises, hey, look, he's going to keep himself pure for us, right? He, he, he's, he's not, he already did that when he came to earth. But you know, if you find yourself in a place where you sin, and as I said earlier, we, you're going to struggle with sin. Forgetting that he's coming back is a, is a form of sin. Confess it. Lord, that's not real to me. Your return is not alive in me, but I want it to be. I admit this. I confess it. And then find out what is the things or the things that, that are keeping you from that. Maybe things you need to start doing or things you need to stop doing. Good things you need to cut back on. Have white space around your life to spend time to enjoy Christ. You know what he wants? What does a groom want? What does a bride want? They want the heart of their spouse. That, that's ultimately what we, we don't want our, the gifts so much as their heart. And that's what Jesus wants from us. Because when he gets our hearts, he's going to get everything. And so that's my question to you this morning. Does Jesus have your heart? If not, I want to encourage you this, right now before you leave to, to do business with Christ. Pray to him. Talk to him. We're, Pastor Terry's going to come up in just a minute. We're going to have communion. I want to encourage you to remember that your groom loves you that he's coming back for you, and you, we want to run out to him. So whatever that takes, as we want to become more like Jesus, whatever the Holy Spirit's been talking to you this morning, I want to encourage you to respond to him as we have a time of remembrance of him. Amen? Amen.